You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 29 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnen and David Ian Howe. Today, we are interviewing Natasha Bilson, who is an archaeologist at a CRM firm based out of London. She is also the popular Instagrammer and runs a YouTube channel by the same name, Behind the Trout. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you on. How are you doing today? Hiya. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you. I can't believe I've been called a popular Instagrammer. It's <laughs> the first time. <laughs> Thanks. Of course. And you had a, a very, I, I thought it was successful. And I think many others would agree um, in terms of your archaeologist and quarantine YouTube series. And I thought that was done very well. And I was very happy to be a guest on one of your segments. Thank you. It's still going. I, I've decided just to keep going with it. I don't know. Then maybe I'll call it post-quarantine. I'm just, that's it now. It's my life. Of course. So you're based out of London and that is where you are currently. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Oh boy. What time is it for you right now? It's my bedtime. I should be in sleep. I should be in bed. It's okay. I can't even speak properly. See, it's it's 9.52. Okay, well, we, let's uh, hopefully not take too much of your time and get uh, kind of like right into today's episode. So uh, when did you first fall in love with science and kind of by extension, when did you become interested in archaeology? My first memory is I was about seven years old and I remember seeing this book about Tutankhamun. And really, that's where my my fascination with Egypt came in, like yeah. a lot of people. And I saw this word archaeologist, and I just remember that word sticking with me. And throughout it all, that's always in the back of my mind. Science in itself, of course, I love it. And I really enjoyed physics. Do you remember, I think it's the OC? It was year nine, so like 14 or 15 years old. This is so random and off topic. But anyway, I remember what I used to do is to remember these random equations. I would like sing a song. (laughs) So for example, to OC, I still remember it. I totally forgot that was a theme song to that. Okay. Gamma X-ray, UV and light, infrared and microwave. Radio waves have low frequency and they have a long wavelength in the spectrum. Here we go. There you go. I'm so surprised. Oh, boy. Yeah, you guys have forgotten. Well, thanks, David. At least you got it. Yeah. uh, Phantom Planet. I I have no idea. The band. Anyway, irrelevant. My friend in Australia, like, for whatever reason, also really loves the OC. Like, that's an interesting connection. But you're in London, not Australia. Maybe it's just a thing. Foreigners love it. I don't know. Yeah. I guess this is what America looks <laughs> like to everybody. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, Sorry. take it away, Carlton. Yeah, of course. No, that sounded great. I've never heard that song and I've definitely, uh, I guess, been illuminated. But okay, so British archaeology and American archaeology are rather separate disciplines. And I think we've touched about this on this a couple times before. What was your undergrad graduate experience in becoming an archaeologist? Like, What was the training and what kind of classes did you have to take? So I graduated in 2013 with a Bachelor of Science in Archaeology. I did it at Bournemouth University. And in Bournemouth, it's a very practical hands-on uni. It's one of the top 10 for that. So you get the practical mixed with the theory, which for me was quite important. And unlike the US, in the UK, archaeology is its own discipline. And anthropology is separate. So within archaeology, you could study maritime archaeology, terrestrial, intertidal. You could, of course, do prehistoric, medieval, Roman. In the UK, specifically, we we do love our Roman archaeology. It's debatable if it's classed as archaeology for some. Like They like to think it's more historical, which is hilarious because it's not. But for us, you know, we're kind of, (laughs) that's how we do it. (laughs) For you guys, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) So... Is anthropology there? Is that more just like strictly cultural yeah, it's anthropology? Com- it's, it's completely or, different. Okay. You're in like a different department to us. It's literally separate. That's crazy. Well, I guess it's not crazy. We probably seem crazy to you guys, but. Yeah, we uh, we have um, a classic. So like 
people that do Greco-Roman and archaeology, they're not even in anthropology. They're like in a classics department most of the time, which is kind of weird. Which is like history, right? They fall into like a history classics department, which kind of aligns similar yeah. to what you you were saying, Tosh, is that it, it's like falls in the same. But yeah. it's funny because when we go out in the field and we do archaeology, but it's not in the department. It's it's wild. <laughs> and but- I think different questions are being asked too that kind of guide the research. Kind of. I mean, with us, even Greek, um, that would actually fall into the classics. It's kind of a strange line. I didn't learn about anything Greek at university, but that might have just been our university syllabus. We focused on human evolution. Uh, so the early hominian, I remember Australopithecus afarensis. I remember learning about Lucy. So we look at that in first year. We look at human settlements and, and how they evolve over time in different places and in parks and cultures. Uh, and then you can start to specialize if you want to do maybe more GIS or AGS, some places they call that. So is it, do, you, do you guys call it GIS, geospatial information systems? Yeah, that is, that? yeah, that's how, that's what we refer yeah. to. What is, what does AGS stand for? I think it's applied. I remember I made that up. Applied geospatial science. Ooh, I think I made, maybe I made that up. I made it up. <laughs> you heard it first. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coin the term. It's been a while. It's been a while. A-G-I-S. Ah, A-G-I-S. Yeah, ARC GIS. That's the software that I had to use. There you go. Thanks, David. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Connor loves yeah, ARC GIS. That's his favorite thing on the planet. Isn't that right, Connor? Yeah, I would send a nice message to our Esri folks that I do not like you and I hate your software, but I use it every day. <laughs> love hate relationship man um trying yeah, yeah, i'm trying to get sponsored uh yeah esri please uh please drop us some money but kind of like going off of that um did you take uh an archaeological field school when you were an undergrad it's compulsory so you have to do five or six weeks per year uh minimum right so to pass your first year you must do a compulsory five or six week course and um, but that's provided by the university Whoa. And it's for what? free. Yeah, so the university yeah, <laughs> it's provided by the university and it's for free. So yeah, sorry guys, but I my first excavation with the university was a late Iron Age, early Romano settlement in South England, and it was amazing. Just gonna say it. That sounds awesome, just by the name. <laughs> yeah. Um it's compulsory, you have to. And then they provide that. And I also got to do some other stuff with uh, a couple of different lecturers as well. Oh, do tell. Shall I? I feel I feel bad now because I know you guys pay for it, don't you? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They're like, hey, are you doing a whole semester? Okay, cool. Give us another six credit hours. Yeah. Worth. And yeah. of course, since it's the US, it's like, that'll be another, you know, 10 grand in loans that you'll never pay off to go do this, to have your little field trip. Yeah, I'm shaking my head right now. I disagree so much with having to pay for field schools. Oh, we do too. We do too. <laughs> okay. So I did get yeah, that five or six weeks it was. That was the compulsory one. But I also was able to do maritime archaeology projects. And like I went to Germany a couple of times, all paid for by my university <laughs> on a project doing a, I was a Mesolithic long barrow. I got to excavate. That was really cool. So you got to loads of like standing stones and stuff. So it's really, for them, it was important for us to get the tools that we could use if we wanted to do commercial or if we wanted to do further education, for us to understand that the practical side of archaeology, it's not just theory-based, and they wanted to, to give us that. Maybe not all universities are like that, but as I said earlier, I went to Bournemouth Uni, and they're one of, one of a few universities that you'll find the alumni in commercial because they've got that backing already. That's that's super cool. So you were kind of exposed to this diversity of archaeological experiences because you you obviously said you were doing maritime archaeology as well as kind of more, his, not historical, but more fort-based stuff. So you got kind of exposed to it all. Yeah, so with the maritime archaeology project, that was kind of like on the side. So a lot of these lecturers, they have projects going on. They get grants, they they have their own research areas. And all you have to do is just ask them, like, do you have a spot? And if they say yes, can, can I go on it? 
And the worst they can say is yes, because then you have to do it. So that's what happened for me. I just asked <laughs> and then I did it and I couldn't get out. <laughs> that's super awesome. I mean, that's especially if it's, it's affordable to do something like that. I think that's ideally how the American system should run, because we have we have all these questions from our listeners asking how they get into archaeology, how they do fieldwork. The money thing is always, I feel like, one of the biggest barriers to folks actually getting out and doing field work. I mean, well, I had like three jobs. Oh, you had three jobs while you're doing this too? <laughs> yeah. So this is crazy. So like I, I had like three jobs. I don't know why looking back. I mean, I know why I didn't have enough money, so I had to, but um, <laughs> the, the actual field schools were free. Like I didn't pay for them at all. I maybe some situations for food and that's it. Everything was provided for me. I wouldn't have been able to have gone otherwise. Yeah. yeah, for us, it's like you run a field school, it's part of the university, you know, you're, you're basically paying a class and that's kind of the whole, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a difference in kind of the education systems in general, but like usually that tuition, because um, you're not applying for a grant, you might have grants that could support the excavation, but really that tuition money is funding the excavation itself, which has really kind of changed how American archaeology is run, you know, in the past 20, 30 years. It's now that, that we were reliant on field schools, the tuition that comes out of it. And we've seen that, you know, during this COVID era where I'm pretty sure the vast majority, like over 95% of, of field schools throughout the country were closed. So there was really no field work going on. And, and I think Connor can attest to this. There was limited CRM archaeology that could occur. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were lucky that we had, you know, I've mentioned this before, we had these longer term contracts, but for the next financial year, you know, those things are being severely limited because you know, the country basically shut down, um, kind of segueing off of that. How are, how are you doing in, um, London, um, post post in between in the middle of COVID? What a question. <laughs> it's a really strange time for us because for, for starters, a lot of us didn't stop working. Uh, we carried on. We didn't stop during the lockdowns. We had to keep going to work because predominantly our work is on construction sites. And if the construction sites are going, we need to be there. Oh, yeah. So you're like essential. Yeah, but we're not essential at the same time. It's a really gray area. Huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strange one because of some archaeological units, they closed. Others kept going because they had to keep going. It just depended on each so uh, we say commercial units, so company. Uh, it depended on each archaeological company's personal situations and each office as well, depending where their office was. Some offices closed, some offices stayed open. So I actually kept going. I didn't stop. But it was okay for me. I, I was lucky. I was fortunate. I didn't have to really deal with like uh, public transport or anything like that. I was able to drive and cycle and walk, bits of both. But otherwise, um, a lot of people had to stay at home. And now the work is picking up again and we're really busy. And it's being able to find archaeologists who are able to work, you know, who are happy to travel in on public transport. A lot of them are not still happy to do that. So it's, it's a really strange time because we have a lot of jobs. We don't have a lot of staff. Do you, uh, do you accept American PhD students living in Boulder? Yeah, well, I think uh, there's a travel ban. I'm pretty sure the United States is like under a world quarantine where they don't want any of us coming or else I'd be over there in a heartbeat. Carlton, I think you're right. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> Connor, at the moment, no. We can maybe put you in a suitcase and ship you over somehow, but they'll probably check it. <laughs> in a crate? <laughs> in a crate. <laughs> With a biohazard <laughs> sign on it. It's like coming from America That's might accurate. contain COVID. <laughs> yeah, you could try. <laughs> I'm One too gangly for that. I'm too, way too gangly for that. <laughs> what exactly is CR, do you guys class as CRM? Because for us, it's not a term that we use. It's a uh, cultural resources management. So we have a lot of like laws about it, but it's essentially like federally mandated that we like in the same way that the United States preserves natural resources like oil or water, like we have to preserve our cultural resources. And like I put have to in quotes because sometimes it just doesn't happen <laughs> on paper. We're supposed to do so. And that's like what our jobs are. And, and CRM is really the private sector. I don't think CRM applies to like federal and government agencies. So like if there's an, uh, a government 
archaeology office, that's not necessarily CRM, whereas it's mostly CRM is really relying on the uh, contracted out private businesses that do archaeology. Yeah, I guess like if you're referring to CRM in general, like as a profession, it's usually like you're referring to like a private firm type archaeology. But I, I think legally, like it's all cultural resource management. Or am I crazy? No, I think you're right. I, th- I would say that it's a big jurisdiction sort of thing. But I think we're going to continue this conversation in the next section. And I want to take a second to say rest in peace to the Bournemouth Cherries who have been relegated from the English Premier League. So if we'll take a moment of silence here. <laughs> okay, on the next section. It's a football thing. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, what tangent? And then it was just, I was like, uh, okay. On that note, we'll be uh, right back with uh, segment two, continuing our uh, conversation with Natasha. Be right back. Welcome back to episode 29 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are chatting with Natasha Bilson, who's an archaeologist at a CRM firm in London. Um, and we wanted to start off this part of the conversation about talking about how you got a job in archaeology in, in London, if you don't mind explaining that. You know, I feel like I should write a book about how I got a job in archaeology because a lot of people are asking me. I didn't realize that you guys are still having the problems that I did when I first started out. In a nutshell, I had about a year's worth of academic field setting experience. So anything non-commercial, right? Research digs, everyone, field schools. So I had about a year's worth of that. And then I actually got jobs outside of London. It took me about, I think, six months to get something in in London. And that was just after six months of experience. You basically need to have three to six months minimum commercial experience to be even noticed by the people that are hiring at these firms. It's the only way. So it's not the best answer uh, and apologies, but the reality is it's very difficult, (laughs) very competitive. So it's like the same thing is here where you have to have six, like two years experience at a job before you have the experience in the job. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) Or you just keep applying. You just keep applying. It's what I did. Okay. Like you keep applying until you annoy them and they just have to say yes. That's that's my advice. You just annoy people. (laughs) I think... I think that's how I got most of my jobs, if I'm being real. So so persistence is, is going to be a huge asset to you? Persistence. You have to be motivated, you know. So we call um, archaeology in the, the private sector, CRM in the United States. What do you guys call it in the UK? And how, does, how do the laws work there that allow you to do your job? Just call it field archaeology. I don't think it's that fancy. Let me start again, sorry. I don't know why, Connor. You're just making me laugh when you talk. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's because I'm weird. <laughs> my, my computer yeah. Um. I think you just, are you sad? Do you want to come to London? Come to London, I'll get you a job. You can work on a site with me. I think when the country opens up, we all might just, okay, just we'll show up on a work site and yeah, uh, just, just come. look for work. Yeah, I'll give you some shovels. I'll get you guys your your safety cards. And yeah, why not? Safety cards? What's a safety card? Oh, okay. So, okay. As I said earlier, you know, we predominantly work on construction site. Yeah. So we have, by law, anybody who works on a construction site, they need something called a CSCS card. So construction site card scheme. I think that's what it stands for. And as we are archaeologists, we have to get the MAP CSCS card, which is Managers and Professionals Construction Site Scheme card. In your, I can give you guys the link for it. But yeah, you have to have this special card to get onto site. That's the most basic step. It's kind of like you have to do a driving theory test, that same sort of principle, before you can drive a car. It's the same thing. You have to do this construction site test if we are allowed on a construction site. Huh. Yeah, just more money. But it, to be fair, it is actually good. You, do, you understand all the rules, regulations, health and safety measures, fire extinguishers. And then me, for example, because I'm a higher position, I have something called a triple STS card, which means I can supervise or manage a certain amount of people on site and I can run sites as well. 
So you have, yeah, different levels of these safety cards, but the most basic you need to have before you can get on. If you're in an urban site, that is. Okay. Yeah, fun fact. All right. So how long have you been working in the CRM world or the, this contracting world? Hmm. Yeah, so we might, sometimes we call it field archaeology or commercial. We generally say commercial archaeology now. Okay. So I'd say since 2013, since I graduated, I really have been involved. I can't get out of it. I keep trying to leave and I just, I can't. I love it too much. Yeah. So since 2013. Okay. And like... Why would you want to leave? Uh, like, are you talking about like maybe pursuing a, a, a graduate degree or changing career fields in general? Well, my initial plan was after I graduated in 2013, I'd planned to work for two years, save up some money and do, you know, a master's. Um, I was going to do a master's in maritime archaeology or public archaeology. I, I hadn't decided. But once I got involved into the commercial aspect of the world, um, I just, I just loved it. And once I got into London archeology, span I was like, that's it. This is my life. Like I can't get out of it. It's, it's so incredible. The work that we do is so interesting. I love it. But the negative side is sometimes our working conditions are not so great. And uh, there's a lot of time pressure. We don't have enough staff. So if you can buy not enough staff, not enough time, and you've got a lot of archaeology to de deal with, and I mean deep strat archaeology, I don't know if you guys know that term, deep uh, stratigraphy. Like, I don't think I'm familiar with that. Like, like time? No, like, so stratigraphy, so you know you have like your different, or strat, you have your different layers, different topographies right. maybe, uh, mm -hmm. so your different uh, phases of occupation, let's say in one area. Uh, deep right. strat is sometimes we get like seven meters worth of archaeological deposits in one area. Uh, oh, okay, like gotcha. I don't yeah. think we have like a, a term necessarily for that. We like just highly stratified site, maybe. Or just yeah. Like, yeah, going going deep, <laughs> go deep, <laughs> or like multi-phased, or <laughs> um, multi-phased, or something like a complex multi-phased site. You might say maybe that's like a technical term. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have these type of complex sites. Again, not a lot of time to deal with it, and then it's just the physical aspect. I mean, we're doing everything ourselves. We're excavating everything ourselves. We don't have anybody to help us. We're not allowed to have like a laborer to come and, and dig for us and, you know, to watch them like when you're in Greece or, or Cyprus or something. Uh, we do it all ourselves. So for me, sometimes that the physical element has has taken its toll when because I'm, I'm I, I really I'm terrible. Like I can do a three person job and then I'll just like go home at night and by like 6 p.m. I'm like lying on the floor, my legs up in the air, stretching my back, thinking, what am I doing to myself? <laughs> You know, my body is like At least dying. You think to stretch your back. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was literally me when I got home today. You know, so <laughs> thanking you for like you know joining us after doing hard work like that. That's that's pretty awesome. Could you walk us through how the process works from like someone proposes a construction project to you seven meters deep in a hole? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> you know, this image of me. Okay. Anyway, right. Okay. Serious talk. Okay. In the UK, we have various types of planning permissions. Uh, we have different stages. So when somebody has an idea of planning, so we have a pre-application uh, evaluation and this requirements, like it tells you what the site might require if you need on-site mitigation works and it lays out a, a fulfillment of planning conditions. And you have to abide by those planning conditions and the requirements by law. Generally speaking, it's by a, a governing board of archeologists. So each county or each region, I think you guys might say each region, no, each county, you have counties. So each county uh, will have an archeologist that oversees all planning works. And from that, they may give that to a local archeological company to have a look at. Um, from that initial request for, say, I want to build some houses. So, yeah, let's use, sorry. Let's use this as an example that I'm going to, I want to build some houses. I want to build 500 houses on this plot of land. The, the steps that are in place is, is quite long. 
which is why at the moment Boris Johnson is is quoted to say we need to build, build, build because there is a long planning permission process. It all starts with you file the document to say I want a plan, and then you have things from the pre-evaluation side, which is the environmental impact assessment that looks at heritage assets and of course the environment. And within the heritage assets, you see, okay, is there any historical maps in this region? Is there any scheduled monuments? Um, We have scheduled monuments. I'm not sure if you guys have that. Or ancient monuments and archaeological areas that are under protection or archaeological parks. All of this then falls into a desk-based assessment, which is like a, a, it takes five days generally or up to 10 days to accumulate this document. You look at all the archives, all the maps, GIS, OS maps, historical maps, you name it. You look at everything you can, all historical resources to compile information about the area that I want to build my houses on. Then from this document, you may have a watching brief. And the watching brief is taken on by generally a a senior archaeologist or a supervisor. And they go on and they might monitor initial works, which is they're just digging some holes here and there to see what's going on. Or I might be with, for example, geotechnical crew. So these are guys who look at the ground, geologists, geological engineers, I think you guys might call them. And they literally are looking to see, okay, what type of strength does each geographic geo, what's the word? Do you guys have geotechs, geotechnicians? Uh, like geoarchaeologists? Yeah. yeah. No, no, they're not archaeologists. Well, like no geotech and like borers who come in yeah, and test. Yeah, like holes. Um, yeah, the yeah. Load, the load bearing of, of, of certain areas. Yeah. So sometimes we watch them do their works if they're doing like infrastructure projects or something we might be with them during the preliminary phase we also have yeah we have different types of watching briefs and monitoring briefs you're just literally watching their works or you're working with the machines um so i might be control not controlling but i'll be working with a, a machine excavator and and telling them how far to drop the ground so i can have a look to see what's going on and then you get your evaluations <laughs> which are like trenches. And again, it's variable on on each site you're on. Sorry, I'm talking and talking, but we have so many different types of archaeological investigations. So it's a lot of people don't realize how many different ways I can do my job. And then of course you have open area excavation, which is like everything is opened up. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask, because like for us in the CRM world, um, that, that contract or public archaeology really takes place if government money's involved. So like if there's a new neighborhood being built, to the best of my knowledge, that that doesn't really occur. You don't need archaeological investigation. And I really kind of want to talk about, you know, what's what's England's attitude, like the British people's attitude towards prehistory? Do they see it as like a joint shared history or or do they kind of see it as like not relevant to them or not relevant to who that you, uh, you know, the, the modern day British are today? I think from my understanding, when people... When, when Brits now look at prehistory, they think it's their history, generally speaking. Uh, they look back and they're proud of it um, from what they understand. But then they're only looking at, it's not their fault, but most of the media concentrates on Stonehenge, for example, or Averyhenge. That's all they focus on. Uh, and other stone standing stones, they don't look any further. Sometimes maybe Orkney Island, so in Scotland, uh, people may focus something on but generally speaking people are very interested um but one thing you mentioned is for us the government doesn't pay for our works it's the developers who pay for us to be there oh. um maybe that's why we have slightly different we have more i don't know we can do more maybe yeah it's not not necessarily like the government that pays for it but they mandate it they hate us being on site, if that's what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> do they do they see you as like a like Boris Johnson saying that uh, a problem with progress or building or anything like that, or is it a, a, a mutually good relationship between you two? So I think what Boris is referring to is HS two, which is the high speed train uh, two. That project in particular, for some bizarre reason, uh, the media is focusing on the archaeological works, but from my opinion from my working experience of 
of being on those sites. Actually, archaeology is, is a small part of it, a very, very small part. And the budget is, is tiny when you compare it to everything else. We're probably the cheapest people on site. Like, you know, we're, we're the cheapest laborers, in other words. So I don't think we have anything to do with it. And if anything, that we have such a small time frame to do our work. So we're not really a part of, of the issue, but they're putting the blame on us, if that makes any sense. I feel like we're the scapegoats. I really, I don't feel that we're the problem in, in, in the development phase. The, the reason why he's saying it is because, obviously, due to COVID-19, there's been a lot of halts on, on certain projects because there's not enough staff to do it. But if something has national importance, then we have to be there as a part of legislation and planning rules. Yeah, we're having kind of a similar situation in the States where um, our president is trying to get rid of or circumvent certain laws, not just archaeological laws, but like natural resources or wildlife protection, environmental protection laws and kind of blaming these different, you know, scientific, you know, resource protection firms, including, you know, cultural resources management for costing the U.S. money and, and, and taking a long time. But it's like, well having these laws in place creates jobs like it's having having what we call the archaeological protections act the national environmental protections act they create an industry and so like he's trying to circumvent and it's not just him his his administration is trying to gut these laws and by doing so you know um it would be detrimental to the cultural heritage here in the united states but also wildlife and environmental issues because it's like part of it is oh let's just drill into the national parks for oil. Like we don't need trees in those. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that we need a new one of, let's go to a new session. And we're back with session three of uh, episode 29 of the Life in Roots podcast, talking with behind the trial, our Tosh Archeo, otherwise known as Tosh. We were just chatting over the break about how you, <laughs> how you just, uh, <laughs> I'm terrible at life. Um, so <laughs> You, you had just met Raven. We had Dig It With Raven on here, actually, as she, also known as Raven, on the podcast <laughs> earlier. I speak in hashtags and Instagram handles, but yeah. She, she was uh, episode seven. She was one of our early, early ones. Seven? On. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, she came to visit you uh, there in the UK, and it was a good time. So I guess I was going to say, as soon as, uh, you know... We are unquarantined from the world. The three of us should fly out there and then we could all hang out together with uh, I think Mike. Is the other one? Uh, he's Archaeology Gains. Oh, I'm kidding. Oh my gosh, he's going to kill me. He's going to make a meme of me. <laughs> <laughs> he t- my waking fear every night when I go to bed is what meme has he made of me before? <laughs> wow. I'm always eternally grateful for being a soul in the archaeology avengers but that's that was my year highlight nothing's beat that so far that was like oh the best God. thing to wake up to i forgot about that yeah the original yeah. one the original one yeah <laughs> my mustache <laughs> yeah oh my god yeah. yo that was oh boy yeah uh, that was fun if you guys haven't seen it i think it's posted on our thing the hulk huh? is like the best character yeah i wasn't expecting that it was just like I, the whole thing was just yeah uh, it was crazy. It, yeah. Before we get into the the rest of this segment, which will be like a little bit of a heavier topic, I was going to ask. I guess I'll have to preface it with a with an anecdote. Here in the United States, obviously we have uh, a pre a prehistory that doesn't belong to the people that you know have moved here, aka like Europeans live here where Indigenous Americans have lived. So we don't really have that connection. Or, I mean, Carlton does, Connor and I don't, with the indigenous peoples that lived on the continent. But in Britain, everyone kind of, I mean, I guess like British people, Caucasian British people have a connection with, you know, the Celtic and I guess Roman populations that moved there. Do people feel like that? Like, do they identify as that over there? Or do they feel like deeply passionate about that? Or is it more of like just kind of just not thought about? I mean, you might see somebody with like a Celtic tattoo or something like that but maybe more up up north more in scotland you maybe would see that identity that that true connection right generally like you know like if you think of vikings or something like they have that sort of style and they really identify it with it and also like the the more north you go oh my gosh it's so beautiful up there like it looks like it 
it's, oh yeah, it's it's amazing. It really is. Um, but generally, I think it's really not even the connection. It's more the interest. That's what kind of keeps people if they're interested in, in looking at these old ruins or the interest if they have some intrigue into earthworks. So you know the shape of like a mound or or something going on that that's uncharacteristic for that area. That's what kind of keeps the momentum alive of archaeology, and that's kind of why public engagement is so important. I, mm. I don't know if people really identify it with like, oh, that's my ancestors. Maybe the Druids, if you go to like Stonehenge during mm. the solstice. But otherwise, I haven't really seen people directly be like, oh yeah, these are my ancestors in this area. Not that far back anyway, not into prehistory. Yeah, I gotcha. I, I had only gone to London when I was there. I didn't go outside the city, but it was awesome. And I, I have British heritage, like my last name is obviously British, but... Like I didn't, when I flew over there, I wasn't expecting to have some like, you know, spiritual connection to like my homeland or anything, but I went over there and I was like, oh, this is neat. And then I was flying back and like, I flew over Scotland on the way back and I was like, whoa, like that's really pretty there. And then two, like, I guess that's where like my ancestors are from. And like, I didn't care at all. Like what I like was flying out. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting, but Prehistory for you guys, what do you class that as? We have, I just realized we have slightly different terminology, I think. Prehistory in the Americas is essentially before, like it's associated with post-contact, pre-contact. And then other people will determine it as like written language or not written language. But I mean, the Maya and the Aztec obviously had written language, the Inca as well, a form of it. So they don't consider that necessarily history. It's still prehistory, but as soon as Columbus and crew kind of roll up here, it becomes uh, like the historic period. Yeah, it's it's been moving. We've been moving like uh, traditionally in American archaeology. It's basically prehistories before Europeans. There's been a move in the last like decade or so to move away from that because it like saying that it was a prehistory just because white people weren't sure. here is not the best way to phrase it. So it's kind of like there's kind of a move for like pre and post contact. Yeah. We explained it as like the Colombian exchange more so than like the Colombians like arrival at work. But I don't know if that's like Carlton, would you agree with that? I don't know. I, I just do pre and post contact. It's kind of like, that's kind of how we've been moving towards it yeah. here. At least. Yeah. Yeah. It's different for us then. Prehistory is, is generally as you said earlier, before written records. So normally before the Roman Roman Empire, Roman invasion of AD 43 is prehistory for us. Anything after AD 43, that's is different. We have different, we, we divide it. Roman era like this, medieval, post-medieval like that. Gotcha. You got a lot of cool history over there at least. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do have a lot. Such a small island. Yeah, that definitely true. I forget like how small it is, but it's definitely had a lot of a lot of stuff going on. I guess that segues into our next topic. Uh, Carlton or Connor, did you wanna do you wanna take this one or not? Yeah, I don't. I don't mind asking. Um, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I've, I was browsing through your uh, your Instagram feed and kind of looking at some of the videos that you had produced. And a lot of them seem to do not not a lot of them, but a decent amount of them seem to do with race and archaeology and dealing with it in the modern era and also dealing with it in the past. And we just kind of wanted to ask you questions related to that and how you see race and archaeology existing together um, in the modern age. Well, it's actually quite recent that I've started to acknowledge the issues around race and, and archaeology. Really, it stemmed from the BLM movement. Whether we liked it or not, we all started to question certain things that have or have not happened to us and, and what we see as systematic or seismic uh, racism or institutional bias and, and so on. So from that, whether I liked it or not, I started, I, ha I felt like I had no choice. Um, I had to start addressing it in the most diplomatic way possible. And that started with looking at the, the history of racism and I really wanted to try and give a safe space for everybody to look at different 
colonies over time in different regions, because you always hear about, for example, slave trade. But I wanted to try and show that, yes, slavery happened in different times, you know, different cultures and its impact. And I've, I've written a whole series and slowly they're coming out. And of course, then I have, that was like a, a, a written episode. And then I have my usual archaeologists in quarantine where I actually found prominent archaeologists who happen to be from BAME background. So that's Black, Asian, uh, minority ethnic background. And we started to approach this and we have a, a whole range of series coming out in, in, for UK based and, and American and Canadian archaeologists. That That's super cool and, and, and super interesting in the past, but, you know, also something that can be super hard to talk about. I, I don't think history and archaeology a lot of the times talks about lives of people in slavery or folks who are um, dealing with systemic racism um, and have been their whole lives. So I'm, I'm really glad that these conversations are happening, especially in the ex-British colonial world. Mm, it's, it's really hard. I'll be completely honest with you. It's a really hard discussion to have. And uh, I couldn't escape, you know, having these conversations. When I started the Archaeologists in Quarantine series, it seemed every single live stream the, the guest that I was interviewing brought up colonialism in some shape or form. And I think after the fourth episode, I was like, okay, I think I need to do an episode about this. <laughs> because obviously every single person I'm speaking to around the world is bringing this up. And there are people who are studying it. I spoke to an archaeologist from uh, French Guinea and their PhD is looking at approaching colonialism in their archaeological records. So it's something that has to be spoken about whether we like it or not. And we have to start having these uncomfortable discussions and hopefully we see positive, a positive outcome. I think you're absolutely right. in kind of like pinpointing BLM, uh, the black lives matter movement as a kind of a catalyst for a lot of these conversations that are being, that are occurring um, not only in archeology, span but in the Academy, but also in um, just kind of civil discourse throughout throughout the world and you know predominantly in the United States. So yes, I was on that live stream with Gabby and hearing him talk about his experiences as an archaeologist in French Guyana. I, I mean, I believe he's the only indigenous archaeologist or kind of how they're taught about their history through a very French aspect and that, you know, their history classes start with French colonialism rather than with kind of like the pre-French occupation of the country. And to hear those dualities between the American history system and uh, the French Guyanan system was just uh, fascinating. It's so interesting and it's kind of sad, isn't it, that we have to have these conversations in 2020. But it just, it's one of those things that have to, have to start, we have to start somewhere. And as you said, it was a fascinating discussion. I'm so grateful that we, we did that and that you were able to join in on it, to have all aspects, stepping stones, stepping stones to the right direction, I hope. Absolutely. And I, I like that it's going in at least two directions where it's, we're talking about colonialism in the past and racism in the past, but we're also talking about the remnants of colonialism and racism in the present in archaeology. And I think those, you know, are different conversations to have, but I feel like they're both happening right now. I feel like I was thinking about it for for a while. I remember for us in in the UK, there was some articles circulating in maybe 2016. And really from that point to now, there've been people have been trying institutions, you know, have been trying to, to open its doors to get more of a representation within its departments. But, you know, as as Carlton said, the BLM movement has been a catalyst and it's now, it's exploded, you know? Everyone has to acknowledge it. They tried to escape, you know, from it before, but with, with the world of social media, all these institutions have become accountable and you know if they're not making a statement and people are outing them for not making a statement or doing something. So that's that's definitely a pro. To, to the movement and to getting equality. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's extremely necessary and it's been like a long time coming in how, you know, archaeology as a discipline 
um, hasn't existed for for very long. Like, you know, in the States, ours really kind of developed, what, like in the 1920s, you'd say, guys, was when it really kind of came to academia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think before then it was just a bunch of rich white guys that went out and just started like digging yeah, it stuff was like, up. Definitely with the depression um, and the, the core. Yeah. yeah. But like, where, where do you see UK archaeology going into the future um, as a result of the BLM and, and this discussion, well, maybe not even discussion, but this call for greater diversity in the field? It's a really, I feel like it's a strange time. It all, I think before even there can be, more diversity within archaeology or within the heritage sector, we need to address the educational system. We need to really look at what the kids are being taught, how they're being taught it. When was the last time this material was looked at? It really, I think it starts from that, the educational side in school and being able to have youngsters connect or feel engaged when they go into a museum, have some sort of connection with what they're looking at and to feel welcome for looking, you know, walking around the gallery to feel comfortable that they can walk around a gallery and doesn't matter their, their complexion. Um, I personally have never felt anything when I've gone to a museum. I've just, like, I'm in my own zone and I'm loving what I see. But I've noticed some people have commented um, and I've spoken to my peers when from school and I've asked them how they felt when they've gone to museums. And it seems that people just don't feel included. So somehow to bring this inclusivity into into everything is the first step. Because you can you can definitely look back as museums as being a result, a direct result, and a almost flaunting of colonialism. You know, it's taking things from other countries and displaying them and explaining them, and that's not inclusive, especially if it's a bunch of people who are not native to these areas writing these things about other folks. Like, I, it would be hard for me, being a native person, to go somewhere and be like have someone else explain my culture to me. Yeah, I mean, Carlton maybe can, can add to that. But I mean, now we have the technology, don't we, to make replicas, reproductions and things like that. So that's now the, the main forefront argument, yeah. I think. Why can't we just do that? I mean, we do have the technology to do that. I had someone message me on Instagram trying to say that, like, we need to move away from, like, you know, calling out the British museum for stealing artifacts or, you know, just like from colonizing essentially and that like celebrate it in that, like it's a place where like people that also live in like the UK who, you know, don't live in their home countries anymore can go and learn about their cultures. And like, I don't know exactly where I stand on that. Like I, I see their point, but like in the end it was still stolen from, you know, India and the Middle East and, in some parts of North America. But maybe we need to look at what the function of a museum is. For me, it's an ed- educational tool. It's a way to transport myself into another right. time, into another a culture. And especially when museums do it right and they get the exhibitions on point, you really feel like you are experiencing that in that time. It depends on the respect that they can they give maybe when they display these artifacts and how much they actually have in, in the boxes in sure. the archives. You know, that's never going to be shown to the public. It's a really hard one. I feel like there is so much stuff that these museums have they don't show. This is the, you know, the really sad or negative point that they have so much stored. Like, you know, Night at the Museum, the second one, that was great. You could see that. This is boxes and boxes and boxes full of artifacts that nobody will see. Yeah. So this is, I think, maybe if anything, we can look at. It's a hard one because what would, if, if there was no museums, would we actually have become archaeologists? I, I wonder that quite a lot, actually. Ooh. Yeah. Because I would mm. like beg my parents to go all the time for like my birthdays or like on weekends. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question, Tosh. I guess now we could like 3D print the Rosetta Stone and like return the Rosetta Stone to Egypt and like it would still be the same thing, you know, keep it in the same display. I don't, I don't know, but it's also not the original Rosetta Stone, you know, I don't know. Yeah, but it's not like we can touch it though. So why does it make a difference? It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I feel like <laughs> I jump back and forth. I think I see both sides. I see all yeah. sides to it because we don't, we, we can't touch the Rosetta Stone. It, it's surrounded by glass. 
So, yeah, if we had a replica, would we even know the difference? It could be a replica there right now. We wouldn't know. Unless it doesn't appear to paper. Yeah, I will say it, but there is like that weird small amount of being next to something and being physically next to something that is deep in the past that inspires awe and excitement. But, but you know, I, I, I don't think that's enough to justify keeping artifacts from other countries in museums. I, I don't think it's a good enough reason. Maybe if they have an and agreement. It, I don't know, sorry. If there's an agreement between those two countries, that's, that's where they should start, I think, with the repatriation. Maybe there should be an agreement with the national museums in both countries. Yeah, I think... Uh... Museums in general during COVID have really had to reevaluate how they operate. You know, in the United States, they haven't opened back up yet, or most haven't. And uh, I mean, there's been some hard questions on how for museums in a COVID era to stay relevant and still support the public. And that's kind of changed. They've had to look back at their mission statements and figure out how to do that, um, you know, without having to be reliant on in-person visitation. So they have um, digital stuff, don't they? Yes, but that goes back into what Connor was talking about, right? With like, there, there is an awe to being in close proximity or being able to touch something from antiquity, right? It goes back into those, those conversations. I think that was, this has been a definitely an excellent episode. We're so excited to finally have you on uh, Life in Ruins, Natasha. Uh, you've been an excellent guest. And uh, Connor, would you like to take it away? Yeah, we, we, once again, we want to super thank you for um, joining us today and staying up late, especially. This is a Life in Ruins podcast. At the end of every episode, we ask the question, and this question is, if you had the chance, uh, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Hell yeah. As you Americans say, for sure, for sure. I would. I, I can't give it up. <laughs> I love it too much. For sure. <laughs> the show well everyone we just interviewed uh natasha bilson you can follow her on instagram at tosh archeo or behind the trowel and you can find her on youtube by searching behind the trial uh this has been a life of ruins and we will see you next time thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey, gents and Tosh, why were the early days of history called the Dark Ages? Well, no. I- because there were so many nights. <laughs> Boo, that doesn't even make sense. Knights, K N I G H T S. Yeah, but that's the Middle Ages, not the Dark Ages. Get out of here. 10 out of 10 for effort, though, Connor. 10 out of 10. All right, everybody, we're out. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.